0: Welcome back. We're live at Supex the Startup Expo with Leon DeGerres. He's a partner at the SCA Group. Leon, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. Maybe before we dive into what you guys are doing, let's get to know you a little bit better. Maybe give us a little background on
1: yourself, kind of where you grew up, where you went to school and kind of how you got to where you are now. Yeah, for sure. Depends on how long you've got. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So background is I grew up in Europe. Okay. um, uh, Multiple nationalities. Very um, cool. Worked in uh, finance for 25 years as an activist investor. Basically going into companies, trying to spot trends that we thought companies could take advantage of, but maybe hadn't spotted those trends yet. Sure. And then we went in and of did what we needed to do to make them uh, successful uh, parlayed that into direct ownership of companies okay um, and which is what brought me over to the united states and now i split my time between uh, company ownership on the west coast which is in the uh, media and uh, digital content side interesting and uh, also strategic consultancy okay so what what exactly is the SCA Group, and, and what do you guys do? All right. So the SCA Group is a strategic consultancy. Um, what we work with is basically in four silos, and we're probably best known for turnaround and restructuring, so two okay. sides of the bankruptcy coin, if you will. Sure. Uh, we try not to take companies through bankruptcy just because, essentially, it's uh, pain, but we will do it if we have to. Okay. And we're probably most well-known for doing the uh, Versace mansion down in Miami. Oh, we were the chief restructuring wow. officer down there. Uh, The other two silos we work in are mergers and acquisitions and growth companies. So M&A, essentially, we don't replace banks or lawyers or anybody like that. But typically, a lot of companies and mid-size and that don't have a lot of M&A expertise in-house. So we go in and provide that in-house expertise for them. So that might be for a sale, preparing a company for a sale, for example, and taking it through the valuation process and the sale process. And on the buy side, it's everything from identifying targets right through to post-acquisition integration interesting on uh, growth what we do is we help companies that have hit some sort of a roadblock it can be financial maybe they need to help, you know, raise capital we don't raise cap but we help them find the right capital structure okay. the deals etc might be finding them the right strategy the right management team the right tools they need to get you know from 10 million to 25 million from 25 million to 100 and so sure. on and so forth sure well and i'm assuming
0: You guys also help people because like obviously like 10 million to or from zero to 10 million and then 10 million to 100 million or 20 million. Yeah. You probably need different types of skill sets and different types of people. So how do you work with
1: companies to manage that? Because that's tricky. It is extremely tricky. And part of the problem is that for uh, companies that are starting out in particular, they can get so caught up in the whole business of doing business that they actually don't tend to think about what is coming down the pike. And then they're scrambling to catch up essentially. Okay. so, you know, oftentimes that's when we're called in, and we're very often called in by capital or by the boards um, to come in and provide some expertise, or as Google would say, be the adult in the room, if you will. Sure. Um, what we try and encourage, though, these companies, and we, and we tend to drift in and out of these companies' lives as they okay. reach each new stage. So, for example, one of our companies uh, based out of Fort Lauderdale, we've been with them since they turned over $5 million, and uh, they, this year they're going to clear 250 Wow. And we've taken them through about 30 acquisitions. So, uh, but we've not been there constantly. We've come in and out as they've gone through each phase. But what we do in each of those is try and encourage them to think about what's next. We try and, and help the owners and the managers take that crucial step back and think about the next steps, not just like, let's make sales this month, or let's make right. payroll this month. Well, yeah, and, and I would also assume that majority of probably the companies you work
0: for never, have never gone through all the different stages, right? Where somebody like you guys have done it multiple Correct. times, so you could be like, do this, don't do that. So what advice do you kind of give people when they're going through those different stages? Is there kind of general things they need to think about it, or does it really depend on
1: what they're doing? Right, so that's a great question. And basically, the answer kind of falls into two parts. Um, on the one hand, we have basic um, skill sets, toolboxes, if you will, sure. that we can give people and say, OK, you need to do this. At its most basic, something like managing a 13 week cash flow. Boring as hell, but without that, you can run out of money in sure. a nanosecond or in 13 weeks. Um, On the other hand, what we are able to do, which I think is less traditional, is because we work in multiple industries, we're able to help companies in one industry actually utilize tools that might be more useful in another industry and say, okay, hang on, you need to kind of think about this. In healthcare, for example, uh, one of my backgrounds is working with consumers, branding, etc. Sure. One of the big things in healthcare right now is patient engagement. Well, guess what? A lot of the skill sets that we use in the consumer industry will translate over into healthcare industry, they don't have that skill set. So that cross-silo ability is also incredibly key to our offering. Right, okay. So how do you actually start working with a company? Like walk us through kind of the onboarding okay. of a company. I wish there was a basic way because it really depends on the company. Okay. And a lot of companies are coming to us with a specific short-term need okay. and it's critical. Okay. So we have to adapt. Ideally, what we try and do uh, when we have the time, and if they've come to us in time, is we start with a business assessment, which is essentially trying to understand how do they make their money. A lot of companies okay. don't make money the way they think they make money, which is one of the more interesting, interesting. outcomes. Yeah, exactly. Okay. You wouldn't think about it, but a lot of companies are logistics companies rather than product companies, for example, and things okay. like okay. that. So we start by identifying what are the key profit and cost touch points, sure. and then we try and say, okay, what are your goals? What are your strategic goals? What What are the tools you're going to need, and how do we bring them on? Not just what you need but when you need it and what's the runway to bringing those things on board
0: right okay so how do you figure that out because it's got to be a little bit tricky right because people are probably telling you no 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 it's this exactly like, no, no no it's that. And like
1: how do you bridge that gap between those well it's uh it's actually the it's not a challenge when you're coming into a company that has a professional management team because okay. most managers have been trained in much the same way in this country whether it's by an mba or simply just work experience, right? Sure. Okay. The the bigger issue is when you come into a founder CEO situation, um, because a founder CEO will often have a vision, right? And they may be good at communicating that, and they may be, be- uh, They may think they're better okay. at communicating it than they actually are, right? Um, and they think they also know everything there is to know about the company. So therefore, they're they're almost even though they've brought you on board, although sometimes it's the board or the capitalists. I right. say. But even when they brought us on board, there can be that tension where they don't really want to be told anything about their own company, even though they've asked you to help them. So it is tricky. Interesting. And I would also assume, like, it's all
0: data, right? Like, data doesn't lie. It's like, this is costing you X amount of dollars a month. (laughs) And then... But you're actually
1: pulling in money over here. Right. What were you going to say? I was going to say, well, it's all about the data is correct, except data can uh, be manipulated true. and can be read in so many different ways. So you're right. The big, And that's one of the big areas we do try and help with is data management. So how do okay. you clean data? How do you, how do you understand what is the data you need? Well, let's start with basic. What do you need the data for? Okay. okay. Uh, what data, therefore, are you going to collect and how are you going to collect it? How are you going to access and analyze it? And how are you going to right. keep it secure? So those are the things we look at because part of it is, okay, if we can get those answers done, we can actually build a framework where the data is helping guide us rather than either dictating us or misleading us. But then how do you prove to them that the data you're showing them is actually the real thing and not kind of
0: your own take on it, right? Right.
1: So one of the key things is to make sure the raw data is essentially correct. So that's the starting point of everything. And one of the guys we work with in our group Uh, who's affiliated with our group, I should say, he describes himself, and I love this, as a data janitor, which actually, I love the term because it's slightly self-deprecating, but it, it explains exactly what he does. He cleans data. Okay. And that's the absolute starting point. So once we can get people to have confidence in the data set, right. then it's about asking the right questions. And that is before yeah. we yeah. ask the questions, we spend a lot of time trying to understand what are we trying to identify back to Jesus what is the purpose yeah. of the data. Sure. And that's how we get the buy-in, by making them part of that process, not coming to them with a model to your earlier point. We don't like, you know, saying that this is how it's gonna be, this is the you know, these are the questions. No, we want them to be part of that process because right. you get the buy-in. Oh yeah, and then you can also
0: prove, like, okay, well, you started here, now you're here, and, like, you can... Correct. Yeah, okay. That's exactly right. So, walk us through that journey. Like, how do you decide when to recommend a company? Okay, you need, like, this role now, or maybe you need to tweak these people's roles, or you need to hire this, right? Right. Or, or, like, bring in somebody temporarily, right? Like, right. you hear that all the time in the startup space. It's like, you have, like, a temp CEO, or, like, you have bringing somebody just to, like, go to IPO, for example. Right. So Walk us through how you make those okay. decisions. So
1: the biggest issue with any management team, uh, whether they're temporary or whether they're the permanent team of, of that new company, yeah. is all growth companies ha- rely on having some sort of an entrepreneurial spirit in them. Okay, okay? That's really crucial because that's what differentiates them. That's what drives them. It's what motivates a lot of the staff, why they sure. join, because they don't want to work in a corporate environment. Sure. But the problem is you do need some sort of a corporate imprint. So right. part of the issue that you have to work out is, okay, how do you intersect that in a way that doesn't destroy the entrepreneurial spirit, yep. uh, but actually still allows you to do what the company needs to do? So one of the first things we do is that business audit, essentially, that I was talking about earlier. Yeah. We try and figure out what does everybody bring to the party? And the other thing we look at, it, there's a theory of constraints, essentially, which okay. is um, we look at what are the things that constrain a company's ability to achieve something. And what that essentially, long story short, breaks down into is is making sure that people are in the right position. And in an early, in a startup, you're aided by the fact that most people are doing everything, right? Sure. So you can utilize that to your benefit by saying, okay, this may be the HR director, but you know what? They have a really good eye for design, so they should be part of the whole creativity process, for example. Sure. So on and so forth. And so it's about... Uh, Asset utilization, identifying the right assets and utilizing them correctly. That's a big part of what we have to do, particularly with human capital. Sure. And then I'm assuming, though, like if you're in your HR example,
0: if they're good at it, but they don't want to do it, how do you kind of manage that until you could potentially hire somebody to like maybe take over that? Mentoring. Mentoring
1: is the way we basically sell it to them as being mentors. Um, in essence, we say, look, okay. we're not going to make this part of your job. That's okay. going to be Joe Smith's job over here. But Joe Smith could really use some guidance. You have a great eye for this kind of stuff. And we know you're worked off your ass right now. But you know, what we'd like you to do is to spend two, three hours a week, just help guide, help mold, help this guy on his journey in this role. So we try and do it that way so that everybody can feel comfortable. Nobody feels they're taking on more responsibility than they right. need or want. So yeah, it, a lot of it is horse trading, quite honestly.
0: No, fair enough.
1: It, yeah, because I could see you probably get some pushback sometimes, right? Oh, for right? sure we get pushback. Well,
0: and then how do you get of the c-suite or upper management
1: to buy into kind of the changes that you guys are suggesting communication pure yeah. and simple it is it okay. has to be permanent communication and in this day and age thankfully that is really a lot easier not only because there are you know the the, the physical tools to do like sure. ipads yeah. phones etc but now there are also suites out there as well management suites etc that allow us to present information in a timely fashion in a flexible fashion And we can try and filter it so that we're also not bombarding people with information because data overload is a big problem. Uh, We can burn people out by kind of just smothering them with data and goals. So
0: do you guys try to do as much in person or kind of remote or a bit of both? Or how does that kind of work?
1: So that really depends on the company. We find that with younger startup companies, they are more comfortable in a flexible environment or in a kind of an open workspace environment. Older people typically want us to be physically present. Um, So I hate to say it, it's an age distinction more than anything else. Interesting.
0: But I also think, too, at least sometime in the process, you should meet people in person. It just seems to, like, go for dinner or just,
1: like, do something that's not work-related, but you're still kind of, like, team-building or whatever you want to call it, right? Yeah, and I think, you know... uh, The old uh, Thursday night is pizza night kind of thing. That's a great idea. But I think you need to, I agree with you, and I think you need to kind of like be more one-on-one with people as well. So, you know, maybe a longer answer to your earlier or a more detailed answer to your earlier question is we we tend to, at the start, we're much more focused on the personal side of it, even if it's a, a remote type of setup. And that might require us to travel to different places. Sure, But we do try and get to know people. As we've gotten to know them and as we start to roll out the program, we can take that step back Right. And we don't have to be so in-your-face in like at an individual call, level. Let's talk quarterly or something exactly, or whatever right. yeah. that is. Yeah. Okay. Exactly.
0: So I'm curious, though, when you guys recommend bringing in somebody, do you actually
1: find that person? Do you have somebody on staff or do you start the recruitment process? So, again, it's a movable feast. Okay. In many instances, in, if it's a C-suite position, typically we're asked to occupy it. So we're okay. often asked to be the CEO, temporary CEO, temporary CFO of these companies okay. to help them get through whatever that... Problem is right. Okay. Uh, more often than not, though, if that's even when that's the case, we are helping them find the right full-time replacement uh, and then okay. train that replacement. Make sure right. that they are aware of what's necessary, etc. We work with a lot of service providers. We know who's good. We know who's less good, and we try and and also match the service provider philosophically with or culturally with the companies we're working for, so right. that it's a good fit. And you haven't got like you know a, a real you know, white shoe banker working for a real young startup and they, sure. the two just can't communicate. No, that, that makes sense. But usually
0: in that case, just to your example right there, it's like you usually need somebody that's a bit older with some experience right. to be a CEO or kind of some C-level suite. But then how do you bridge that gap between, like, the younger generation that's a little bit more kind of startup-y, Wild westy, right? Because, like, are I think tr- the perfect... Virgin- are, are
1: you trying to say old people can't be hit? Well. No, no, no.
0: <laughs> it's just, like, I think the perfect example is, like, um, Google brought in... Uh, Schmidt, oh, Yeah, uh, yeah. Right? Uh, and he clearly was did Absolutely. a good job there. Yeah. And then he was only there for a decade or so, but...
1: But I think that actually works only when you can get a personal connection between the founders, the early founders, okay. and, and the managers. I think things break down into two, two camps. You've got the founders who are hands-on, love to kind of get dirty with the product. In IT, you know, all they really want to do is code.
0: Yeah, you know? yeah, fair. So,
1: you know, one of the things Eric Schmidt did that it was very smart, apart from figure out the whole business model, was he understood that the two founders really just wanted to be kind of creative doing their own things. Okay. They didn't want to deal with the management of the company. Yeah, sure. So he did that. That model, I think, is very transferable outside of IT as well. So you've got to figure out what is it the founders really want to do, help them sure. achieve that. And if it's if it's to manage the company, simply give them the support to do that. If it's to do the whatever the thing is they want to do, then you have to provide maybe a bigger solution on the management side. Sure. And I guess it's just understanding where the other person is coming Correct. from, right? That's in exactly yeah. yeah. And then do you guys kind of mediate those conversations, or, or how does yeah. that work? So first of all, we're very very careful about which partner we put in. We we are not at all. We don't take ownership. Like if we've gone out to win a client, if we just can't really, you know. Click with that client, or it's clearly not really. I think we'll look in the partnership to find the person who can. Okay. And that's number one. I think number two on it is that what we try and make sure is that the overall, the overarching uh, goals are aligned between sure. everybody who's involved in the process. And so, consequently, what we try and do is make sure that the founders are very clear upfront with what is it they want to achieve. And then sure. we will orient ourselves around that to make sure we have the right people. Plugged okay. in at the right time to help them do that sure no that that's quite interesting, so do you guys try to stick in a single vertical or a few verticals, or how does that kind yeah. of work? so we work in most verticals, I guess okay. you know that the one of the verticals we will absolutely not get into is banking just because okay. of the regulatory sure. environment. Um, there are a couple of others which we we tend to avoid, but on the whole we've got uh, in within the partnership we have deep skill sets in virtually every single in um, industry so I guess the other answer to that question is we actually like the fact that we have multiple industry experience because of that uh, illustration I sure. or example I gave you earlier, bringing those skill sets from another industry into one that hasn't necessarily experienced them yet. It is
0: interesting how a lot of people just like, well, they're like, well, that's not in my industry. It's like, yeah, but business is business, right? It's like Absolutely. And it's, businesses have people and people are people. So it's kind of like, well the skills the industry almost doesn't matter in probably a lot of cases it's like
1: if you have an accounting problem well everybody has that right Yeah, we should hire you for marketing. That's what we try and tell everybody. Uh, Not everybody buys into that argument. And there is, of course, there are some phenomenal consulting groups out there that are very industry specific. And and we don't want to take away from that. I think what it really boils down to is size of company and what actually is the issue. Okay. You know, I mean, if the issue is you've got something really technological on an assembly line that needs dealing with, yeah, we're probably not your guys. Got you. But if you've got something that's more strategic oriented or financially oriented or things like that... um, we can help them much more than sometimes somebody who's very narrow focused, because we can slot it in in a broader industry uh, picture, essentially. Right. Okay. No, that that makes a lot of sense. So,
0: where do you kind of see the future of work going? Do you think yeah. everything's going to go digital? Do you think everything's no. getting replaced by software or artificial intelligence? Like, what's no. your prediction on that? So,
1: I think that I, I think that uh, there's always going to be a mix between technology and human. I think that Agreed. it's just going to be. Uh, I'll give you an example in healthcare. Okay. Um, so right now, for example, although there, exi- there are care bots that exist, there are chat bots that exist, sure. telehealth exists, the reality is people want to combine it with a human interaction, particularly sure. with health. Um, I think with things that are technology oriented, generally people are more comfortable allowing technology to take the lead because it somehow fits. You know, so for example, even self-driving cars, I think people will ultimately accept that kind of technology okay. taking the lead. Uh, with healthcare, because it is so personal, for example, even though AI may eventually be much better than humankind at diagnosing, sure. um, I think people still need that human interaction, that sense of comfort, that sense that, of empathy. You know? Yeah, fair. Because you can't really get that from a machine. You right? can't. Maybe they'll code it, but I it, doubt it. Yeah. Well, I'm
0: curious. Like a simple example is like a algorithm or computer can go through say like a thousand x-rays clearly faster than a human being right and if they point out a handful of a human being needs to review because there's a it's different right or it's something's wrong right then i think like that's a simple example of it's like okay well if it can speed things up right give something better and basically say like okay somebody physical has to go through and look at this then that, that makes all the sense, Absolutely, right? and I think yeah.
1: that's it. You know, AI and machine learning, uh, particularly, are best suited to tasks that are really highly repetitive and, sure. and are similar. Uh, very quickly, because I know of time, but, yeah, um, sure. you know, a, a good example here is in, you mentioned imaging and diagnosis. Well, one of the fascinating things is IBM Watson, which is, yeah. other than DeepMind, probably the Lynch, you know, the lodestar in terms of, of AI, sure. failed disastrously on diagnosing oncology. Um, that was last year, and IBM had to come up and say, yeah, it couldn't do it. It failed to identify correctly, and it failed to give a proper di- uh, diagnosis. Sure. But on that, that was because it was too broad.
0: Yeah. Okay, it it gave it too
1: wide a field. But on a narrow field, like eye disease, for example, we've, had, we've just had cleared. I don't know if you know this, but IDX has gotten FDA approval for the first self uh, and a remote uh, sorry artificial intelligence guided diagnosis machine, which means oh, no human interaction at all. Wow. So, But it's very specific and it's something that is, uh, is a very common problem with the same symptoms, highly, uh, repeat, highly repeatable common symptoms. AI copes very well with that. So I sure. think we're a ways away from passing the Turing test on this. But I think, yeah, in, in very repetitive tasks, easily and narrowly defined tasks, I think AI in the short term and certainly medium term has a really bright future. But I think humans are around at least for a little bit longer. No, fair enough. Um, But sadly, we're out of time. No, thank you so much. It was really nice uh, to meet you. But let's close
0: with mentioning where people can get more information about you.
1: Okay. So, yeah, we can uh, go to our website, which is thescagroupllc.com. Or you can just hook me up on LinkedIn, and that will link you to our website. And uh, failing that, just drop me an email. Perfect. Well, thanks again for doing it. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you very much. Bye-bye now. Bye